Welcome back to the second part of our interview with Piers Pigou. If you haven't already listened to the first part, I recommend that you go back and listen to that first. In this second part, we talk to Piers first about upcoming elections in Zimbabwe and South Africa and their potential for democratic processes to prevail. Secondly, we talk about Russia's war in Ukraine and the implications for the African continent as a whole. And finally, we talk to Piers about his career so far and how he's managed to find success in the fields of NGOs. So please sit back, relax and enjoy the episode and get in contact to let us know your thoughts. Changing completely now, I wanted to touch briefly on uh, upcoming elections in Zimbabwe, in South Africa, what you think of the governance issues, uh, what could play a role in, in, in those elections and things of, of that nature. Well, let's talk about Zimbabwe first. Uh, Zimbabwe appears to be on a trajectory to another contested election mm-hmm. uh, that we've seen repeatedly in the past. The question in many people's mind is not whether it will be violent, because we're already seeing violence playing out, albeit in a fairly low level, but nevertheless there, selective harassment, selective informal and formal repression. Uh, And the question really is, how violent will it become? Uh, And uh, to what extent will the opposition be able, and civil society, be able to access communities for mobilization Mm. to get people to effectively register in the next year before the elections and to be able to defend the vote from various elements of manipulation. And that's also questionable as well in terms of them being able to to hold the line on on many of the issues that are in play. Uh, So the projection for many of us is that we will have a similar outcome uh, ZANU-PF will win the election, uh, probably secure two-thirds majority, if not more, in Parliament again, because the emphasis of the opposition will be on the presidential vote, not on supporting the parliamentarians, which is, you know, when you've got limited assets, that's perhaps understandable at one level, but you really should try and do both. Yeah. Uh, but we saw that in the last election, where, yeah. where Chimisa scored half a million more votes sorry, half, uh, uh, half a million more votes in the parliamentary process than the, the opposition did in, in, in parliamentary support because a big whack of Mugabe's supporters actually supported it. Uh, so, so, yeah, and, and, you know, there'll be a, a, all sorts of complaining, probably mostly after the fact, as opposed to laying the ground beforehand and having a more effective, sustained... Uh, lobbying and advocacy both uh, within the country regionally and, and, and internationally uh, on these issues. I mean, there is some of that going on, but I think it will be stalemate, really, mm. in many respects, in which the region, if it's not too violent, the region will turn a blind eye. Uh, when I say the region, I mean South Africa and the continent mm. might endorse the election while the rest of the, the world sort of goes mm, and turns its nose up at it, or the West at least. Mm. And the opposition. So, you know, we're back into another cycle of, of, this, of, of status quo. It's, it's a kind of frozen conflict, the wrong word, it's a tepid thing. Uh, uh, but there seems to be little prospect of a meeting of minds unless there is a major crisis. And, and what was the last major crisis? 
could could I argue that potentially the economic situation now could turn into a a crisis for the people there? I mean, if you end up with mass people starving and things like this, because I believe the official inflation numbers are now 190%, and the unofficial figures by some people's floated 350% plus. Um, could that be a catalyst for unrest, for unrest and, and for actually a move away from this locked status quo situation which we've had for a long time? Well, you know, uh, the last time there were riots in Zimbabwe was in the late 90s when there were the bread riots, okay, when people spontaneously came out onto the streets and, and, and rioted. Uh, in terms of street protests and demonstrations, the experience that most Zimbabweans had since then uh, has been limited and quite severely repressed uh, as well. I, I was listening this morning to a very interesting podcast. Uh, it's a new book that's uh, been published called The Time Travelling Economist, uh, which which I, I must get my hands on because this the, the author was talking about you know, the current uh, uptick in interest rates and the impact on, on, on different parts of, of, of the globe where communities are rising up. And you see it here in social media, people there, oh, look, you know, Sri Lanka's a warning to all these terrible people. Look, we've got another thing going on in Tunisia at the moment. This is going on. You know, I, I don't discount the, 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 the possibilities of, of popular uprisings or... or spontaneous things and, and you know there's some question about <clears throat> what happened here in July last year in, 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 in relation to, to that issue we, we can we can come back to some of that in Zimbabwe however uh, the experience we've had in the context of widespread immiseration and really tough socio-economic pressure for years now you know is that the, the Zimbabweans keep bending, keep making a plan, mm. uh, keep exploring options. Question is, have the options dried up for them? Uh, and certainly things are going to get a lot tougher if the government proceeds as it looks as though it will to take away the permits from the people that are here, for example, the Zimbabwe exemption permits. There's 180,000 people on those permits, plus their dependents. Uh, you know, there's threats from the kind of anti-foreigner mob here in South mm. Africa that there's going to be you know, mass deportations and all the rest of it. That's unlikely, uh, but it will force people underground. But a number of people will go back. Uh, but but as I think, I think most will stay here because they'd rather risk being illegal here and uh, uh, it's e well, easier. The cost benefit of being here yeah. illegally is going to be better than still being back in Zimbabwe in that situation. Yeah. Uh, you kind of get, you kind of left with this impression. Having, you know, I've spent now twenty years looking at Zimbabwe, and and and, and you kind of have to wonder at what point is this place going to just like blow up? Uh, and you go to Zimbabwe, and you don't get the sense that it will. Although what's clear from some of the survey work that's been done is particularly urban youth are less risk averse than they have been before. There is a greater sense of anger. There's a greater sense of uh, believing violence is a problem solving mechanism. You've seen a rise in violence anyway uh, in, in Zimbabwe. 
Cape, the comparison with South Africa is, you know, people shouldn't get lost in that. Yeah. It should be compared with what it was before in Zimbabwe. Well, um, so, yes, you, you feel there's a more febrile situation going on there, which, you know, you could spark this, you could spark that. We saw the riots in January 2019, all the violent protests there, which were, were, were put down. That was kind of unprecedented in terms of the levels of violence that were being employed in street protests. And certainly you hear on so to see on social media people agitating for violent responses yeah. to this. I mean, this remains a minority, I think. Yeah. Uh, so while I think there may be some protest, I think it would be rapidly put down. Uh, and so I don't, at this juncture, see it, it contributing uh, to, to any kind of major upheaval because Zimbabweans will make a plan. They'll, 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 you know, the rains haven't been too bad, so they've got a little bit more food security there. Uh, and this is the kind of stuff that will, will, will go on, uh, I think. Yeah. Uh, which, in, in many respects, of course, then just elongates the life of the, of, of the regime. Yeah. I wanted to ask you to, uh, because... Uh, well, again, you're very vocal in Twitter in different in different aspects, and uh, I wanted to ask you in particular, how do you see it will affect to Africa the conflict right now between uh, Russia and Ukraine, and how the West and its positions? Africa has been a place of great power competition for many years. During Cold War, it was clear. Uh, do you think we will come back to a turn in that? Uh, the declaration, the, the condemnation of Russia in the in the UN, for example, didn't uh, have a big portion of the of the African states voting uh, in favor of that condemnation. How do you think that can influence in uh, the levels of violence, or as we were mentioning before, in in uh, cooperation with certain particular governments or in their in their involvement in African politics? I mean, it's very interesting dynamic because. Uh, you know, whilst clearly it's not foreign policy priority for, for the West or for Russia, it's how they're playing this game mm. with each of these constituencies. You're right, uh, while most African countries did support that resolution condemning Russia, it was, a, it was a significant minority that didn't. We know that there was enormous diplomatic pressure on African countries to support that. Uh, so if they'd been given a free vote, I think it's quite likely that the, that the majority of African countries would have, at the very least, abstained. That uh, there is a sense that, that Europe and North America uh, is is feeding a binary narrative that that does not is not solution orientated. On the one hand, but on the other hand, and this is where I struggle with with the. South African position is this sense that you cannot be critical and diplomatic at the same time. Mm. And South Africa, of course, sent mixed messages. At first, it did condemn the invasion. It did call for withdrawal in its first statement. And then it kind of backpedaled. It didn't withdraw those statements, but it, it just kind of airbrushed them out of any future statements. Yeah. Uh, uh, I don't think that, that, that they were being listened to. I think that, that, that also the way in which the West kind of barked its instructions and expected kind of fealty uh, for them to fall in line and when they didn't uh, put their noses out of joint. Uh, 
perhaps sometimes with good reason, that I do think that some of the African countries have employed very weak arguments for their positions, uh, and some of the constituencies on Africa have employed very weak uh, arguments to, uh, uh, to, which in effect are, are uh, soft peddling on Russian aggression and Russian violence. Uh, in a view, in 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 their attempt to be balanced mm. uh, and to look at the wider picture, uh, what's important in all of this is that it provides an opportunity for a tougher discussion between Western entities and and and, and African entities. Uh, I think the biggest weakness of that is while there's some leverage, potential leverage for African countries in this. One of the biggest weaknesses is 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 that Africa does not have a united position on these issues, mm-hmm. and and you know some people will argue well they don't have a united position because the West is, you know is is playing its divide and rule strategy and Moscow is offering this and that and mm-hmm. and China is offering you know etc etc, so so it's it's a it's a messy reflection of uh, relationships that have already been very much in play. And issues of sensitivity and trust and all of these things which have been bubbling away under the surface in many of these relationships have kind of bubbled up to the surface. So it does provide opportunities to address some pretty hard questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, in my mind, the biggest challenge is, is whether uh, Africans are going to come together with a coherent, united, credible, evidence-based approach mm-hmm. to those issues, which I think is quite possible and feasible. Uh, and how the West is going to respond in a way which promotes a level of ownership, accountability, uh, and is and doesn't reinforce notions of prejudice which many African countries feel they're subjected to. So it's a fascinating space to, to be in at the moment. Uh, but issues around sanctions, for example, there and food prices, you know, there's a great deal of cynicism that, that you can lay all of this at the door of Russia. However, having said that, uh, you know, in terms of, of understanding Russian security interests and all the rest of it, and, and, and the double standards of the West when it does what it did in Libya or wherever it might be, Iraq, all of this stuff is, is bubbling away. Uh, this, in my mind, has been used as a, as a comfort blanket uh, to not engage with the vile aggression by the Russian mm. state. Uh, you know, the comparisons uh, that are being made, there are false equivalences, yeah. I believe, in, in, mm-hmm. in many respects. So I don't see it having yet contributed to a real honest conversation about those things. But the space is there for that. Well, uh, as we mentioned you before, in this podcast, we are not just talking about politics, we are also talking about careers. Uh, uh, we are talking, what we want to know is also how did the people that were interviewed get to their position, what was their career a little bit. I would like to ask you, Mr. Pigo, what was more or less, uh, <laughs> how has your career been developed? Uh, oh, bri- bri- bribery and corruption. Effectively. <laughs> 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 uh, well, I mean, perchance, I think, by, 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 by many respect, in, in many respects, I came to South Africa 30 years ago and worked as a volunteer in what was called a... Uh, a paralegal advice office, so dealing with basic uh, uh, issues relating to to social and economic welfare uh, in the dying days of, of the last apartheid regime in 1992. 
And during that time, uh, South Africa was a very violent country in, with respect to political violence. In fact, more people died of political violence in the negotiation period than in the 30 years before that, during the, the apartheid period, uh, or the mainstream apartheid period. And then I got very involved in looking at issues relating to political violence and accountability, and particularly the role of the state and state actors within security forces. And that led me into working for NGOs that were investigating those kinds of things, uh, which then led me to being asked to join the Truth Commission in their investigation unit in 1996. Uh, and that led me into a world of uh, uh, what's now called transitional justice, uh, which has been a kind of a growth industry in many respects, both in the academy, uh, but also with respect to practical implementation of countries going through transition. And, and so there was a, an interest in the kind of modeling that was done in South Africa uh, that became this kind of, of, of uh, uh, great example for, for, for dealing with the past at the time, having built on the Latin American studies and so forth. So, so I explored that world for, yeah. for, for some time, uh, working for various institutions uh, in South Africa and outside South Africa, doing doing work uh, across the continent in places like Timor, East Timor, and, and in Latin America, and even in Northern Ireland and Canada, looking at how uh, countries were dealing with the past, but either through the lens of uh, uh, prosecutions and, and criminal investigations or... Uh, truth recovery processes, and then interesting enough into the area of, of memorialization and, and dealing with records and archive mm. of the past. And I went really then into running uh, a, a, what's called an activist archive based at the University of Witwatersrand, which was trying to document struggles for justice in the past in relation to the apartheid era, but also in terms of struggles in contemporary South Africa around HIV, socioeconomic issues and so forth. And we had a freedom of information program that was trying to test new laws uh, around access to information and these kinds of things. And we were taking government to court to access documents from the police, intelligence and defence community and so forth. Uh, and from there I went back to working on, on primarily on Zimbabwe-related issues, which I started doing a little bit of work in the, in, in the late 90s and early 2000s. Uh, and joined the crisis group in, in 2011, uh, and I've been with them ever since. Uh, so, you know, it, kind of one thing stumbled into the other in, in, in many respects, and I think the, the critical thing was, first of all, being prepared to do a lot of voluntary work in those early years. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's got a lot tougher for younger people these days, because mm -hmm. I think the options are more limited, and sometimes they, they have to do endless internships before they get anywhere to, yes. to get a foot in the door. <laughs> Uh, and and, and that, that's, I think, different from 30 years ago when there were fewer people yeah. playing the game. The other thing is that, 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 that you're coming across a lot of younger people who have much more book smarts than you, but their struggle is to get into the sort of practical arena. And, so, and, and, and I think that, that that's, that's the real challenge is to, get your, is to have the combination of both. If yeah. you can get your fingers dirty with a little bit of practical work, but it's becoming more and more difficult to, to get your that space in, mm -hmm. in, in, in the practical work uh, because the older people just hang on and don't go, <laughs> and don't go away. And, 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 and unlike other sort of technologies, so to speak, yes. sometimes 
your, the length of time you have in the game is your collateral. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so, you know, I've worked on these things for 30 years, therefore I must have a grand brain on this kind of stuff. <laughs> actually, yeah. uh, uh, which is a kind of defense mechanism for, for many of us, and I'm including myself, of course, <laughs> in this, uh, because we don't want to be kicked off our perches yet. Mm. Uh, but I do think that there is important space for greater collaborations and interactions and engagements. But the biggest problem for this field is the relevant funding that relates to this field. Yeah. Uh, it's been siloed off into kind of a security risk analysis kind of work, mm -hmm. which has been tied to a more commercial arena as well, which is important because it needs to self-sustain in some respects. Mm -hmm. uh, others have tied it to the academy, which is dependent on external funding uh, to a large extent, unless they've got big endowments to, that they can earn from. Uh, and, and uh, you know, I, for me, the critical thing where we need to see much more uh, confluence is around issues on governance, on economic development, these kinds of fields which need to understand how conflict interacts, uh, interfaces with these, with these considerations. So I think there's, that the future is going to be the fusion of yeah. those issues and people who find the interconnectivity between those approach. issues. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Awesome. That's fantastic. So thanks very much, Pierce. Uh, where can people find you as well if you if they want to follow uh, you? I, for my sins, I'm on Twitter at Pierce Pig, all one word, P R E R S P R G O U. Uh, you find yep. And any articles that you've written will be shared on there as well, I'm sure. Yes, anything that I've written. I mean, Crisis Group generally, for the bigger reports, we don't put our names on reports, but yep. for smaller materials, we will do that. Uh, and I'd encourage people who are interested in Mozambique to sign up to the Cabo Ligado uh, publications. They're free, caboligado.com, uh, and those will drop into your emails weekly and monthly. Fantastic. So wonderful. thanks very much for your time. It's been a wonderful chat, and we'll catch you next time on the Geopolitical Pickle. Absolutely. Look forward to it. Take care. Thanks, guys. Thank, Thank you. Very you. Much. Thanks very Thank much. You. Pleasure. So much. Pleasure, pleasure. I hope it was useful. It was great. Thanks for tuning in to Your Political Pickle. We hope you enjoyed the episode and we look forward to seeing you next time. In the meantime, follow us on Instagram for more behind-the-scenes content. And subscribe to us wherever you get your podcast. Thank you and see you next week.